This is The Classical Mind, a podcast where we explore the Western canon. I'm Dr. Jared Henderson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And we are really excited today to get started and to introduce you all to this project that we're going to be doing. Um, you know, before we can get into actually our discussion, our first discussion today is going to be on, well, like, what is a canon and why does it matter? Um, and we might talk a little bit about what we want to accomplish on this podcast. But I think before we get into any of this stuff, it might be kind of useful for us to just introduce ourselves. Um, so, Wesley, um, why don't you uh, take the lead on that? Yeah, so uh, I am an Anglican priest. I live in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm the rector of a parish called St. Paul's Anglican Church in Crownsville. We're about 10, 15 minutes outside of downtown Annapolis. Absolutely beautiful uh, area. Um, I was classically educated uh, growing up, uh, and I also have been a a classical educator for, I guess it's over seven years now. Uh, So I've taught in a variety of formats. I've worked with homeschool students in a sort of co-op style setting, um, but I also taught Latin at a classical Christian school for a few years as well. I taught third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade Latin, as well as some literature and uh, and some other sort of like theology type classes. So I have a great love for everything that we're talking about on this podcast, which is sort of the great books and the Western canon and classical education. I mean, all these things are, are sort of right in my wheelhouse, and uh, I feel very comfortable with that. So I'm very excited for the opportunity to get to do this with you, uh, Jared. I think this is going to be a, a ton of fun. Yeah, um, my background is very different. I'm... Uh... I have a PhD in philosophy, which I earned in 2019, uh, and I now live in Austin, Texas, where um, I actually work in tech now, but uh, sort of left academia to go into the tech world, uh, for better or worse. Um, Out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, a whole new set of problems, you might say. But I, you know, I, I'm a lover of, like, the great books. Um, at least where I did my master's degree, we had a real emphasis on the history of philosophy, and that really introduced me to this way of reading, which was like pick a text, read it slowly and thoroughly, and really try to like engage with it. Not just like, let's learn what they said, but let's like almost get into the mind of these great writers, um, which was really a formative experience for me. And that the the author that I sort of learned that with um, was reading Aristotle, was reading actually uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics which I felt like because it was the book that I learned it from, uh, it's like the book that I always go back to when I want to refer to something. If I want to frame an issue, it's like I almost want to think, what would Aristotle say? Um, So while I was not classically educated and I have never taught at a a classical school, um, I I definitely have like kind of an affinity for this kind of education. Uh, I know as my wife and I talk about having kids, it's like definitely on the table for us. Um, but even if we didn't send them to a classical school, I think just the idea of initiating them into the life of the mind and sort of a reading life that's based on the canon is something that like matters to both of us quite a bit. Um, and that's why I wanted to start a podcast like this and especially start a podcast with someone like you, uh, Wesley, because I just thought we could have some really cool conversations about all of this stuff. Plus, it's an excuse to just read more um, yeah, and actually go through maybe those bits of the canon that I never got around to reading. Why don't we just say a little bit about what we want to do on this podcast, maybe about the format and stuff, Um, because I'm sure people are going to have a few questions like, 
how often can they expect to hear from us or what are we going to read or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, our goal basically is to do this in a sustainable way. I mean, you work, I am the priest at a parish, so we we have a lot on our plates uh, outside of the podcast. But I think we want to really release one sort of main episode where we discuss one of these great works a month. Um, and we'll re- we've released our our schedule for the first season uh, already on our Substack, which you should subscribe to. Um, so you know today our discussion will be kind of broad. What is the canon? Why is it important? Why does it matter? But starting with our next episode next month, we're gonna get into specific works uh, a little bit more. We're gonna start with uh, with a book called The Intellectual Life, uh, which is a really really wonderful uh, sort of introduction, kind of to what we're what we're trying to do. Um, I think. And so that's helpful. And then we're going to talk about uh, Plato's Apology. Uh, We're going to look at the life and times of Frederick Douglass. Uh, We'll look at um, the Iliad. Uh, I mean, yeah, we've got got a huge thing. And the the list, the reading list is um, on a Substack post uh, available to everybody. And that is going to be linked in the show notes. So anybody who wants to go and see. And our goal there really is... um, if you want to read along with us, you now have time. And we, we understand not everyone is going to be able to read like 12 hard books um, or you might just have other things you want to read instead. Right. But maybe there's one or two that you think are really important that you'd like to read along. So we want to give you some time in advance, um, though, if if people see uh, on that list, they're going to notice that um, we actually have eight books posted, even though we're posting for um, 11 episodes. So uh, to make a 12 episode season, right? Some of those are because we're trying to get some guests and we just want to confirm the guest with the work. Um, that's just a logistical thing, but they'll also notice that there's a little, uh, bracket there for some weeks or some months where, uh, we're actually letting our subscribers pick the books for us. And that's going to be one of the bonuses. If you decide to financially support us on Substack. So if you subscribe on Substack, um, you get access to a private feed. Uh, we're doing it in sort of this kind of um, main content is always free. The book discussions are always free. Um, but main, uh, but additional content, maybe we talk about um, some supplemental works that wouldn't fall into the canon, but maybe more commentary works. Or maybe we talk about um, other discussions we want to have, more topical discussions, might be on some bonus episodes. Uh, and plus with Substack, they have these nice community features, so you can kind of enter into a community of fellow readers and lovers of the classics, and then you get to also help us pick. Um, right now, the plan is about two books a season, so two um, two of the books basically per 12 months. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can also find that link straight to our Substack uh, down in the show notes. That'll be a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to the Substack format. I think there's a lot of good things uh, there. Yeah, exactly. I think we can have a lot of fun with it. It also kind of encourages because it's um, there's a post and then there are comments and the th- there's threads. It's it's um it's slower than like a Discord or a Facebook group, and it's a little more exclusive. So I think people can have time to be thoughtful, which is the kind of community we'd like to have, right? As a thoughtful community of readers who want to just talk about difficult books together, um, and really kind of shape um, what we're calling you know, they're the classical mind, right? So uh, our entire project is centered around the idea of the Western canon. Um, And so we should probably talk about, you know, what is the canon? You know, why it matters and things like this. I mean, there's tons of issues we want to talk about here today. Um, But I think it 
first helpful for us to just say, like, what is the canon? And then talk about some of the complexities that arise when we say maybe negotiate what falls into the canon. Yeah, we definitely, uh, I think whenever the term gets used, there has to be a little bit of uh, epistemic humility uh, along with it because it has been used in the past to sort of, you know, hammer people who, who maybe don't quite subscribe to a certain kind of thinking but but basically the western canon is made up of works that have formed and shaped our uh our society's imagination and the conversations that we're having together and so by definition it's it's going to be sort of fluid it's going to be debatable there will be things kind of on the periphery of it that you know some people will think should be included and and some others won't but that's actually i think one of the beauties of it is that we we get to kind of live in this constant negotiation of of looking at these works and how they've impacted us and um and and engaging in in that conversation yeah and a lot of people i mean there's sort of two errors that can arise when you want to talk about the canon uh and i actually get this um from Harold Bloom right that um, Bloom kind of has these two parties he talks about, uh, about the, the canon, and we're going to try to kind of navigate a middle way. We're sort of avoiding the rocks and the whirlpool uh, here. Um, there's like people who sort of want to deconstruct the canon. Bloom kind of calls them like sort of the academic radicals, people usually inspired by Marxism. And I say this in a non-pejorative sense, just descriptively of people who are inspired by Marxism. Um, uh, Bloom calls them the, the school of resentment right uh in his book on the western <laughs> canon uh and they want to like dismantle the canon and it's kind of a revolutionary effort when they when they do this um those are like the principled people op- uh, opposition to the canon there are some less principled uh um opposition to the canon which is some people just like don't like the idea of a canon um and i think there they just make a mistake they think that we can ever have a reading culture that doesn't have a canon like one will form right uh and we can either be conscious about it or 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 not right um and we can try to like sort of preserve it or maintain it or cultivate it you would maybe that's the better word to say um but anyway one of these is going to form but then on like kind of a, a further uh error that's like way on the other uh end of the spectrum here is a kind of like like the sort of right-wing defenders of the canon who like think like these books uniquely encode moral values um and um, that seems to make this mistake where, like, uh, one, uh, we shouldn't reduce these books just to their moral value, right? Um, and and two, that kind of actually puts the books kind of above us where we're not engaging with them, right? And we're not going to produce new works that maybe renegotiate some of the terms uh, here, but instead we just, like, take them. I mean, we want to say almost take it as gospel, right? Because what it's doing is almost taking the canon and making like a secular canon into an almost like theological canon. Uh, yeah. And that's not what we want to do either. Yeah. So, so basically our purpose then is, is to walk a, a line between these two positions, right? We want to avoid the harmful extreme of what we might call deconstructionism and iconoclasm, but also refuse a reductionistic approach to the canon and its works. Um, and so, uh, so it kind of raises the question for me, well, why, why were, are we reading the, canon at all um why is it important for us to isolate these works i mean you mentioned inevitably a canon forms um i mean in theology we talk about a canon within a canon you know different traditions will sort of isolate certain texts that they think are really important to their community so it's a, it's sort of an inevitable 
feature of of any sort of reading community that it, that there will be a canon. The Western canon, as it's kind of come to to be called, is uh, has kind of three advantages to it, though. Um, the first is that it's it's time tested. I mean, these are this is a thousands of years of conversations that uh, continue, and and so we we can kind of look back and see uh, what works have endured. Um, and which ones haven't, you know, and, and, and the ones that have endured, obviously there's something to them that, that makes them worth engaging as a result of that. Um, and, and, and because those works have endured, then if, if we're reading them, we can participate in the great conversation. Um, this kind of big, uh, these big ideas uh, going back and forth, starting very early um, in, in sort of the idea of self-consciousness and, and, and have continued uh, throughout, throughout human history. And so we're not just uh, neutral observers, like scientists dissecting a frog. You know, we are participants in that conversation. We're shaping that conversation, and that conversation is shaping us. And for that reason, we can also say that the canon is a mirror. Um, Peter Kraft talks a lot about that. Old books are uh, speak to things that don't change, that are sort of immutable. There is something about human nature that, you know, all the sort of accidental circumstances in which we find ourselves and the various challenges that we face, those certainly vary generation to generation, but there's something human about Homer or Plato or, you know, uh, 18th century English literature that we can identify with that resonates with us, and there's a reason for that. And so, um, so when we read those works, we learn more not only about the people who wrote them, but even more about ourselves. Yeah, I think it'd be nice if we could break those down a little bit more and say a bit sure. about each of these uh, a little quickly. Um, I mean, there's just so much to talk about here. Um, but I think, for instance, talking about like the canon as time tested um, is is a really important point. A phrase that I've picked up from somewhere. I wish I could attribute it to someone is this idea of using letting history be your editor. Um, mm. So that sort of, there is a kind of process by which certain texts are preserved. It is not an infallible process um, because many good books go out of print, right? In fact, many good academic careers have been spent saying this one book that was published 80 years ago was actually a good one, right? And no one took it up, right? That's a, that's a common kind of academic argument um, to make. But... What we can say is that the books that make it usually are very good, uh, and there's a reason we want to read them, even if um, we end up kind of opposing them, right? Uh, you know, I'm someone who finds, like, Nietzsche, like, kind of abhorrent when I get, like, think through um, how far, like, his view of the world is from mine. It's, like, very hard for me to fathom it. And I think for that reason, actually, it's important that I preserve, like, actually do read it, for one, but also Nietzsche lasted, right? Like, Nietzsche, has, his ideas have remained. Um, and so it's it's useful for us to read some Nietzsche, um, even if it's not something that we would, you know, look to usually. And that, again, isn't to say that, you know, new books can't be good. In fact, my view is that some new books will be great. And... Um, some new books will eventually make it into the canon, right? Um, and we should read new books, but there's a kind of value to this time-testedness, right? Uh, the Chesterton would call it something like the democracy of the dead. We look at a consensus that has appeared in tradition, um, and th that gives us almost like, it's a way for our forebears to kind of vote on, uh, what we're going to believe, right? It's, it's them weighing in, um, it also, I think, once you get used to reading these sort of time-tested works and these old works, 
uh, you start to think, um, one, your new ideas usually aren't that new, right? So, like, you're actually not as novel as you think. But also, just because it's novel doesn't mean it's good. Uh, so there's sort of a two-sided uh, attack on the idea of of novelty or the, like you know what uh, C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery uh, in in this idea of like whatever is new must be better than what is old. I mean, I think you know the better criticism is like what I just said here, which is just whatever is new is often actually just as old as the the stuff here, but it was it was discarded at some point. Nothing new under the sun. Exactly right. Um, but I do also really like your point about epistemic humility, right? That um, the canon is kind of associated um, in popular imagination with a kind of snobbery, someone who has read all of these great books. Um, but someone who's really let themselves be formed by reading the canon should really take it as like, I'm not that smart. I, I, I am, right. uh, or at least I am not uniquely intelligent, so that I can weigh in on the world in a way that no one else ever has. Um, I think, actually, if I uh, look at my own education, you know, uh, the kind of style of philosophy I was eventually sort of really molded into is kind of a contemporary uh, analytic philosophy, very big in the Anglophone world. And it's often very ahistorical. And I think this tends to uh, make us think that we're coming up with radical new ideas. It was a shock to me when I discovered after defending my dissertation that there was a 19th century philosopher who might have approximated some of my, what I thought were my best ideas. And if maybe if I'd read history a little bit better, um, I would have been able to see it and maybe draw from him and like, and, and learn more, right. And save myself some time. It's almost like, uh, well, and, and I think there's a sense in which our time period sort of as a whole uh, does this so it's not even just that that we think we have these new ideas but but w it often comes with a kind of disdain for the past and so the epistemic humility element of this is saying no a 21st century american can learn at the feet of you know a greek philosopher from the fourth century bc um and and they have things worth saying to us that we need to actually really listen to because these are so important i think um it's unfortunate when you look at, at sort of pop media and the way that they talk about or discuss the past as being purely primitive. Mm -hmm. And that it just it, it strikes me as a very sort of arrogant position to take to the past. Certainly, there are things that we prefer as moderns. It's great that we can do this podcast when I'm in Maryland and you're on the other side of halfway across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, that's technology. That's wonderful. But at the same time, we still have problems, and many of those problems have existed for a long time. You no, know, absolutely. And I think this is one of the reasons why, when you bring up like the great conversation, why it's important for us to start engaging in it. Um, and and I think here there's actually a kind of boldness that accompanies it. So we're trying to be humble, but there's also going to be this kind of boldness where we're going to say, I think I can be one of these people who participates in the life of ideas that has sort of shaped the west um mm. right uh it's it's a kind of boldness company humility so it's a very kind of weird boldness um because it's not arrogance and so often we conflate arrogance with boldness i, I think the word you're looking for is intentionality mm -hmm. that might be because right. the question we're, we're going to engage those ideas whether we are conscious of it or not you know i mean you mentioned nietzsche earlier i mean there are people who i think probably embrace 
some of his outlook on the world without knowing, even knowing who he is, but it's just been sort of fed to them and they sort of passively receive it or uncritically receive it. And they end up, you know, replicating those ideas in the way that they live and in the way that they think. Um, and so what we, what we want to do is a kind of intentional analysis of, of what we're taking in that then produces a, a kind of in positive engagement with, with these sources as well. Um, so yeah, I think that idea of humility and boldness at the same time is uh, really should manifest itself in, in what we would call intentionality. That's a really nice point. And, and we need to then decide as we're reading um, like what we want to focus on, right? Like we want to learn certain things and, uh, you know, it's not like we need to solve the problem of justice from scratch, right? But we still have injustice in the world. So we need to figure out what justice is so that we can then go and sort of fight it, right? Um, and I think that uh, you actually listed some nice examples for us in our notes, uh, right? Was just like, for instance, Plato's discussion of justice or rhetoric or uh, the ordering of the self and society. These are issues that we want to talk about now. These are issues that are relevant now. Um, and so we need to have a conversation about them. But again, we should recognize that, that conversation is not a new one. It is not as if we discovered justice five years ago, and now we're uh, finally there. We have been discussing justice for thousands of years, uh, and what we need to do is um, piece together a, a, a viewpoint and then a set of actions informed by all of these these great works, You know, filtering these ideas through experience, through rational argument, um, through the kind of tradition that we inherit, you know, there's a lot of different mechanisms at play here, and then figure out the particular actions that are usually highly context dependent, like what we need to go do now, right? Right. And if we if we start from scratch, we are sort of not helping ourselves to these great resources. Um, yeah, absolutely. Or, or in the same way, uh, another example that you gave, I can't take credit for this, is like reading uh, reading Frederick Douglass, reading W. E. B. Du Bois people we plan on reading right they are like teaching us about the black experience um in a way that i can't like i can't understand that experience from scratch right i will never have the necessary experience but we we do also think that it's possible to like understand where people are coming from and one of the ways that we understand where they're coming from is to read the books that they've written um you know frederick Douglass is making rational and emotional appeals and uh, i don't disparage either of those kinds of appeals in his in his writing he is pulling on the heartstrings and also sort of um challenging your mind right to make you think about the institution of slavery um and w.e.b du bois is doing a lot of similar kinds of things when he's giving an analysis of reconstruction right and, and it should be pointed out that you know both of those thinkers have a direct line to the sort of great conversation, classical education that we're talking about. You know, it's not like they just burst onto the scene and, and all of a sudden had these ideas. They were well read in many of the same books we're going to be discussing. And so they were then looking to further that conversation and saying, well, no, we deserve a seat at the table if all this is true. Um, and so it's kind of, I think, a really cool appropriation of the, of the, of the great conversation, the way that they, they do that. Yeah, let me pull this quote uh, that we have in the document here from W.E.B. Du Bois from The Souls of Black Folk, because uh, I think it's great, and I think it kind of really yeah. nails down why we think these books are worth reading for everybody. 
Uh, so uh, the voice writes, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out of the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So, wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. And one, that's just good writing. That's just good prose. <laughs> um, but two, well, two, like what a message, right? This is someone who's experiencing real and intense um, discrimination is fighting injustice uh, all around in his context, right? And is also reading people that he would probably look back on and we can all look back on and sort of painfully see some of their uh, uh, some of their issues or some of their their moral oversights, right? But that distance in their writing allows us to kind of read them, to take what is good, to learn learn from them, and then to to move on, right? Um, and and I think that's a, a really really powerful point. And and reading the great books allows us to do that kind of in a unique way. When I was a teacher, we would, you know, in a classroom setting, classroom. I I didn't realize I think going into being a teacher that 90% of the job is classroom management. And so uh, teaching, especially when we got to the middle school classes and, and I had my middle school, you know, sixth, seventh grade boys, um, discipline is a, is a big deal for them in, in a classroom context. And I, I remember thinking, feeling almost sort of depressed about this for a while. Man, this behavior is so bad, this, you know, one group of students. But I, I came to find out that it actually in some ways did serve a positive purpose in that there was a kind of negative example that they were setting for the other students who saw it and learned from even their their bad behavior. And so there's, a, I think, an analogy to, to literature. Even when we're reading works like a Nietzsche or someone who we probably wouldn't have a whole lot of great things to say, there can be a kind of negative value to, to, to reading them as well, you know, a kind of what not to do. Not everything is is prescriptive in literature. I mean, we're going to read, you know, the Iliad, and I, I don't know that um, that a lot of the characters in the Iliad act in a particularly noble uh, fashion that you would want to emulate, you know. But we can still learn about how we should act through their negative examples. Exactly. One way of putting it is that what we get to experience, or what, what fiction allows especially— um, but nonfiction can do this for us in a lot of ways too, um, is, that, is that fiction allows us to sort of imagine what all of these different scenarios would be like without having to actually go and do them, right? right. So it allows us to think about the horrors of war, um, and so much of the Iliad is about these, the, you know, the violence, right, that's there, that's waging a war, um, or uh, experiencing racism from a variety of angles, um, something like this. Uh, literature lets us do that, and um and that's itself like a huge a huge gift all right and in your final point this sort of of the the breakdown of these three points um was the canon as a, a mirror so the canon actually kind of reflects back on us as well both as individuals and as a society and we generally think that we need to have those mirrors right to aid in reflection and uh examination um so, you know, sort of a famous line in the history of Western philosophy is when is when Socrates is saying that the unexamined life is not worth living, which another way of sort of spinning that is to say that we need to ask difficult questions about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And 
um, we don't read these classical texts from a kind of faux neutrality as if we could ever kind of achieve this. We have a kind of perspective that we bring to them for one, but also we're reading them with a purpose. Um, and in that purpose, I would say we are looking at uh, a, a work, whether this is a text or you know other forms of art or something like this, and we are trying to figure out um, the true, the good, and the beautiful, and that itself is going to help us rightly order ourselves toward those th those things, you know. And I think that um, to some of our listeners might sound like a very like distinctively um, religious way of putting things. And um, obviously, you're you're a priest. Um, I'm I'm Eastern Orthodox. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian. So obviously, we're going to talk about it from that perspective sometimes. But the idea of finding the true, good, and beautiful, the transcendentals. That is not a uniquely Christian position, right? In fact, you will see this in the West. You will see this, especially if you read the Greeks. And then rightly ordering ourselves, that language really is also an inheritance from Greek philosophy as well. So if anyone is kind of saying, like, what's what's up with the way that you guys are saying this? Well, I would say this is an indication that we should talk about the Greeks um, a little bit more. And I think, too, I mean, as we're talking about the idea of, of canon as mirror, you know, it, if it's true that there are kind of timeless truths in these texts that that are timeless because they touch on these transcendentals that we're talking about because there's something true, there's something good, there's something beautiful in them. Well, then we can find ourselves in those texts. Um, so, you know, when I read Jane Eyre, I can identify with Mr. Rochester's desire to cut corners in search of intimacy, right? Um, I can identify with Achilles' rage when his pride gets hurt in the Iliad. Um, and it also works, I think, in terms of disparity, right? I know that there's a big difference between where I am and where those beatified souls in, um, in Paradiso are as we encounter them with Dante, right? So I think that, um, that the humanness of the of the of these texts allows this conversation to continue and by participating in that conversation we're we're just inevitably going to learn i think a lot more about our, ourselves yeah and i think when we talk about um i mean so there's a reason that the kind of education which prioritizes the great books has often been called humanistic education and that the studies mm -hmm. of this is is the humanities right we think of humanism now, it has a very particular meaning, right? I would just say that humanism, the way we're using it, is something like person-centric, right? It is about the development of the person. Uh, and this is something that is, this idea is something that has certainly influenced a lot of thinking about classical schools, but also about some sort of um, paradigmatic examples of homeschooling, like Charlotte Mason has these principles, right? And one of them is like the child is a person. Um, yep. And... Uh, we are starting kind of with the assumption that every one of our readers and us, you know, all of us, we are persons and we are in persons in need of development, though. And um, there's this idea I think a lot of us have that we want to go and fix the world um, and we want to make the world a better place. I, I know as a high school student, I definitely said that when people asked that about me, like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to make the world a better place. Um, really, you cannot make the world a better place until you have sort of at least gotten your house minimally in order, metaphorically speaking, which is to say you have to think about getting yourself in a, in a better place as well. Um, we 
if we want to change the world, we really kind of need to change ourselves. And we need to think of ourselves as those individuals that could manage a better world or that could that inhabit a better world. And classic works actually kind of can contribute to that kind of self-development. Um, you know, we think about virtues and vices as um, dispositions often. That's a very Aristotelian way of, of saying this. Um, but we can also think of them as either the vices as like corruptions of ourselves and our souls or and the virtues as sort of excellencies um, and talk about a certain balance where we have the correct dispositions. And these books don't just expose us to moral examples of the good and the bad, but they actually can help train us a little bit. Now, you mm -hmm. will never get a full moral education uh, from books. Uh, that, that itself is impossible. Um, but it can play a big role. And I would say a classical, uh, not even a full classical education, because a lot of people who listen with us are going to be adults who didn't get this kind of education, right, that want to fill in the gaps, right? But I would say this kind of classical exposure, becoming well-read in the classics, does help in moral formation. Um, and moral formation is not just the the sort of, it's not just the territory of parents with their children. Uh, moral formation is something we're all always undergoing um, uh, until death, really. We, we need to, to continue um, morally forming ourselves. And thus, I would say we need to, really never stop reading. And, and there's an aspect of this too that I think is is really important and and you know our our reading list will include some nonfiction, some philosophy, but it'll also include fiction and like and even in some of the nonfiction, I mean you mentioned Frederick Douglass and the way that he at, at times appeals to the heart and other times appeals to the head. I mean what is virtue but it but the integration of the person. It's it's about um it's about a sort of holistic development of the person. So there would actually be something kind of I think profoundly wrong with uh with someone who wants to uh, like an abolitionist in the abolitionist movement. Who, who would only ever aim an argument at the head or only ever aim an argument at the heart. Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but if that was your only emphasis, well, then you're not really treating a person like a full person because we are heads and we are hearts, uh, but we, we are not one at the expense of the other. I mean, some of us may emphasize one over the other, but, but as a whole, as a human being, you, you, you need both. And, and so the classics really do this for us. I mean, you really feel for Achilles, you feel for Hector in the Iliad, you know, but there's also a kind of then critical assessment that's occurring kind of as you're reading as well. So that training is super important because when we go out about our lives, the same thing will happen, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll have those sort of emotional experiences, but we don't want to just live by our emotions. But also, uh, well, we need to learn to think critically, even though we don't want to do that at the expense of 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 everything else about us. So I think that uh, that we can really learn a, a kind of integrated life uh, from from reading some of these texts and thinkers and and um, and exposing ourselves and sit, sitting sitting uh, sitting at their feet. I think that's exactly right, and I think that brings us to a really nice conclusion for this discussion. Um, just as a note for listeners, probably our episodes will usually be a little bit longer. But when we're talking about a text, but we're going to try to keep that that hour length seems like a good way to do it, right? We're going to yeah. introduce you to these books, but we might end a little earlier this this time. Um, but let's just say like what we hope to accomplish with the podcast, right? Obviously, one of them is that we want to absorb wisdom from time-tested text. Um, so we want to extract whatever goodness is there, um, and we just like, kind of want to make ourselves better, right? We want to help our listeners do that. But actually, 
one of the real advantages of this podcast is that you and I get to read these books again and then talk about them with someone who cares, which is right. such a valuable experience, um, which is so good. It's the book club kind of ideal, right? Yeah. Yep. And then another one is that we want to enter into this great conversation. Right? So we want to think about how our own ideas, our own goals, this mission that we have in life um, is a continuation of something that we have inherited, that we've been a part of for a very long time. And then finally, we want to you know, use what we learn uh, and uh, approach the good life. So this is this kind of moral formation, right? So I think in all of this, what we have is a kind of intellectual endeavor that it will not be solely constrained to the intellectual realm, but instead is an intellectual endeavor, which is part of an integrative way of living, uh, which is it includes the moral, the social, you know, um, the intellectual, the rational, all of this. Uh, and we're trying to achieve a little bit of everything by reading through um, some of the books in the canon. The virtue of prudence is knowing the means to the ends, right? And so that's very much what we want as we absorb this wisdom from these texts is... Uh, not only honing in on what it is that our end should be, but how should we get there? Mm -hmm. Or we might even ask the question, how should we then live? All right, well, next month we will get started. We'll read uh, The Intellectual Life. If you look again at the list that's in the show notes, uh, we have also published links to all of the books that we've chosen so far, so you can order it. It also has like the ISBN, so if you want to get it from a different shop or something, you've got time. Such a good book, though. That's one where I would recommend anyone who might be interested in this project should think about reading this book by Sir Talonge because it, uh, it is a really, really excellent book. Um, but before we conclude and wrap up with a few housekeeping things, I want to go into a little segment that I think we're going to call End Notes. Though, I have to say, I like the title for this segment. I hate End Notes, usually. You know, I'm a, Me too. I'm a footnotes man. Um, yeah, but, no, End Notes are of the devil. But it's hard to have footnotes in a podcast, so we're going to call this End Notes. And during this segment, we are going to commend a book to you that's maybe relevant to what we've been reading as well, um, or you know, sometimes a movie, something like this, but uh, some recommendation that we think would be worth reading based on what we've been reading lately. So, Wesley, what do you have? Yeah, so a book that I just recently finished that I, I so enjoyed, and, and it touched on many of these themes that, that we've discussed tonight, is called Rescuing Socrates. How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation by Roosevelt Montas. And he um, he is a professor at Columbia. Columbia actually is one of those schools that still has um, a requirement. I think it's first-year students have to do a sort of Great Books class. And he kind of heads up that initiative there. He went to Columbia. He, was, um, he immigrated to the United States when he was in high school, um, didn't speak English, uh, learned English while he was finishing high school, got into Columbia, into this program, and just started reading these great books and, and just really loved them. And so his, so the book is part sort of memoir autobiography, a lot about his experience and his history, um, which is really cool. Um, and then it's partly a, just a defense of the classics, kind of against, I think he has in mind kind of that more radical audience that we discussed earlier who, who may not see much value in engaging the canon at all. Um, or, or even deconstructing the canon. And so he says, you know, no, there's there's so much to learn uh, here. And, and his own journey was so enriched by by engaging with the classics. And um, so I, I thought it was really cool. He, he specifically isolates four uh, thinkers. So he, he has a chapter on Plato, a chapter on Augustine, a chapter on Freud, 
and a chapter on Gandhi. Uh, and it's very, every chapter is very thorough and very well done. And, um, I, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, I thought the chapter on Augustine was the most interesting. I'm sure you would agree with me, Jared. Uh, probably. Um, uh, yeah. As, as someone who has read a decent amount of Augustine and always likes him, uh, I probably would. All right. The book that I want to recommend um, is a bit different, and it's by this writer named Paul Kingsnorth, and it's called Savage Gods. It's fairly new. Uh and I bought it because I thought this was going to be like a book about like a writer living a farming life and moving out to the country and sort of living the life that I sometimes fantasize about. But most of it has been about um, figuring out his own relationship with the written word. And it's, it's a writer kind of grappling with words themselves where he starts to feel like maybe words aren't as great as he thought they were as someone who's devoted himself to them. Um, but along the way, one of the things that I, I really like about the way that Kings North writes um, is that one, it's very raw and it feels very almost stream of consciousness sometimes. But another thing is that he'll often frame what he's saying by going back to a writer that he loves. Um, so he talks about D.H. Uh, Lawrence for a while and starts quoting at length and then wants to wonder why can D.H. Lawrence feel this, but I can't, right? And this is kind of the, the way he frames these questions. Um, and I think for anyone interested in the canon and stuff, that's a tangential reason to read it. Another reason, though, is just that it's very powerful. Um, and it has been um, a really good book so far. Excellent. Savage Gods, you said? Savage Gods. Um, and it turns out, actually, what are the savage gods in this in this book? I, again, thought it was going to be the gods of nature or something like this uh it's words he he words are savage gods is how he says it oh interesting yeah so uh really was a book that defied my expectations um in all the best ways and it's also short too it's one of these 120 150 page books uh, i've read it kind of slowly because i just pick it up when i want to but it's been great wow that's awesome all right so uh we're gonna wrap up for the day and let's just talk a little bit about these logistics uh as we said, anyone is free to subscribe to us. They can subscribe to us on um, on Substack, you know, as a free subscriber, which will just get you some of our free posts. There won't be many free posts, but there will be some. Uh, you can also find this podcast on every major podcast provider. We're going to have it all out. But what's really kind of important for us is that it's helpful if we have some financial support to make this a little viable. It takes time and it takes money to be able to get all of this stuff done. Um, for one, we have to buy books, right? Uh, another is just there's like technology fees associated. And um, three, it's just nice if there's people want to support us. They say this is a valuable thing. So we have a uh, a subscription option on Substack, uh, which is $5 a month, or you could do $50 for the entire year. Um, so you get a little bit of a discount if you want to stick with us for the whole year, which is basically for us a season. Um, you will get bonus episodes, which we're still working on the format for those, so we can't promise exactly that. You'll get those community posts, and you'll be able to help us pick books. Um, that's, I think, a pretty good deal, especially if you're into this kind of stuff, uh, and we would love to have some support. But of course, we appreciate it even if you support us by listening, by you know giving us a review, or by sharing us with a friend. All right, well, this has been The Classical Mind. And we will see you next month to talk about A.G. Sir Talmadge's book, The Intellectual Life. <laughs>